Welcome to the Southbank Centre podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, Senior Programmer for Literature and Spoken Word. Today, we're bringing you some of our best bits from 2017's London Literature Festival. This year's festival encompasses the 50th anniversary of Poetry International and explores how literature and poetry can remind us of our shared humanity in a world on the brink. So sit back and listen to some of the biggest and most inspiring writers from around the globe, including Karl Overknausgaard and Claudia Rankin, and other major speakers including Hilary Rodham Clinton and Tom Hanks. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you very much for that extremely deserved warm welcome for um, the magnificent Margaret Atwood. I was actually going to give a special thank you to our guest here, a guest appearance um, from Margaret's handbag, um, (laughs) which has taken on a life of its own. If you don't know about this already, um, perhaps you should tell us. It became a thing because I took it on stage at the Emmys. And I think you're supposed to just have a little seed pearl covered clutch bag. And uh, so it attracted some attention. And, and since that time, of course, it's become quite swelled headed and uh, wants a social media account of its own and in, insisted on coming tonight. And it got its own hashtag, which was the handbag's tail. So I would like to say a few words. Hello there. (laughs) I'm going to shoot a video from inside (laughs) this handbag. It will be quite dark. (laughs) We're actually not going to talk about hypothetical books this evening, although we, we could. We were going to talk about two books, although Margaret has written well over 50, almost 60. Well, I'm, I'm very old. You know, it's kind of, they accumulate. It's not that I'm very speedy. And I'm not even particularly prolific. I just didn't die like John Keats when I was... <laughs> that was a bad career move you made there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're just going to talk about two of those, I'm afraid. Um, the Handmaid's Tale, of course, and Alias Grace. And in theory, I suppose, if, if you've read these books, you'll know that Alias Grace is set in the 19th century and The Handmaid's Tale is set, we don't quite know when. But in fact, I feel like they are both about the present. Is well, that sort of true? Well, they do have something in common. Bonnets. <laughs> so, yes, they both have bonnets. Yeah. And uh, on the theme of bonnets, just this week, the Vera Wang fashion designer launched her fall line, which is Handmaid's Tale inspired. Um, but, you know, Alias Grace, 1840s, it was the age of bonnets, but they, they had to do three decades of research to do that because it's 1840s, 1850s with crinolines and then 1860s when the crinolines have gone. There is a lot of fashion research to do. Well, if you get it wrong, you will get, you used to get hate mail saying things like, you idiot, Uh, (laughs) don't you know that that was not the hat style for for the fall of 1864? (laughs) You know, because people go into this stuff. Somebody will notice if you get it wrong. 
my goodness, there's nothing to restrict the imagination like a website devoted to anachronisms in your work, you know. Well, I don't um, know. I, th I think if, if it's a matter of history, you ought to get it right. Well, a police is not a reading goat. Let me repeat that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just in case. Yes, you were but as for the future, you, you just have to be consistent with what you've already said. Although I did have one man once in an audience say, Of course, The Handmaid's Tale is autobiographical. And I said, No, it's not. And he said, he said Yes, it is. And I said, no, it's not. It's said in the future. And he said, that's no excuse. <laughs> was he a fortune teller? Did he think perhaps that no, was what was going to be autobiographical? No, no, I, th I just think he really thought that I must have undergone some of these, these things to be able to put them in a book. Well, let's, let's stick with The Handmaid's Tale, because actually I'm interested in what it's become. I mean, it has developed this life. It hasn't had to relinquish its old life, really, because this is a book that was never out of print. It was published in 1985, right? So this idea that the TV series has given it a new life seems sort of vaguely insulting. Yes, but it's true. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but not just that. Also, the symbolism, the political symbolism that it's developed. You Can know, you talk about that? I did you not know? fix the U.S. election. It wasn't... <laughs> It was the Russians. Um, <laughs> but, and, and we were already into the show. We, we were already deeply into it at that moment. So mm. uh, the decision to make it was in the past. They started shooting in August. Um, they were halfway through on November the 8th. They were already uh, had you know, half of it done. And they woke up on November the 9th and said, we are now in a different show. Even though nothing in the show itself had changed, it was going to be framed differently. So then you had people protesting, wearing Handmaid's Tale outfits, not the Vera Wang version, but you know, the yeah. sort of Halloween version. And, and it came to mean something, came to symbolize resistance, it's, right? It's an immediately recognizable visual symbol. The ones that turned up in state legislatures were people protesting the enacting of woman-limiting laws in which a bunch of male legislators, legislators were making decisions about women with no women involved. It's a good protest thing because you're not saying anything. So nobody can accuse you of making a disturbance. You're just sitting there, but everybody knows what you mean. But you have, you have said that, that American democracy is, has never been so challenged as it is now. I mean... I'm you, not you, alone in, in thinking that. Precisely. So yeah. you, you must... <laughs> you must feel that there is a kind of um, real solidarity in this, do you? In, in, in being, your invention being used for these purposes? I'm very pleased that, that people are able to use it in this way and that it's had the impact that it has had, but if I had a choice, hmm. you know, literary obscurity over here with democracy carrying on in a proper kind of way and notoriety over here with the political situation as we have it, I would choose the former. <laughs> Maybe not when I was 35, but now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's, um, it is very eerie, the situation that we find ourselves in, and I don't mean just America. 
So interesting, because exactly these the things that you describe were based on fact. You said uh, that were based on historical truth. My rule for the book truth. was that nothing went into it, no detail went into it that people had not done at some time in some place. Mm. And a number of those places were, in fact, American, although by no means all of them. So nobody could say, Margaret, you certainly have a dark, twisted, evil imagination. <laughs> nobody would ever do this. And uh, number two, I was very tired of people who would say it can't happen here because, in fact, anything can happen anywhere given the circumstances. Mm. Um, and three, these were, these were things that were already being said in 1985. People on the right were already giving pretty strong clues as to what they would do if they had the power. You and know, you started with some press clippings, right? I mean, they weren't, it wasn't just... Oh, I clipped you know. madly. There was no internet then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there were no lattes. <laughs> it was the olden days. Yeah, so I actually clipped with scissors, not the cut and paste feature. Um, I clipped with physical scissors out of actual paper things, and I Impossible to put imagine. them in files. Yeah, well, they, when they made the series, they updated it to now. And that's why you see people in the series. The then of the series is our now. So they have cell phones, which they didn't. There are updates, aren't there? I mean, and also sort of ethical updates, I suppose you'd call them, like, you know, FGM. It was happening then, but it wasn't well known. If I'd mm. put FGM in the book in 1985, nobody would have known what I was talking about. There are several differences, but they all have a rationale for the series because it was updated to, to now. I mean, did you find at the time that people interpreted it as a parable about somewhere else? I mean, for example, I know you were in Berlin when you were writing it. What they said was differed from country to country. Mm -hmm. So in England, they said, jolly good yarn. <laughs> They'd had their religious civil war back in the 17th century. America never had a religious civil war. Canada said in its nervous way, as it always does, could it happen here? <laughs> yes, could it happen here? The answer to which was probably less likely uh, because Canada is so diverse it would be hard to put together a, an us and them. We've got five political parties. Mm. They've only got two. <laughs> and do you see the kinds of problems that leads to? <laughs> Whereas in the United States, at least on the West Coast, they were already saying, how much time have we got? Oh, really? Okay. And somebody spray-painted along the Venice Beach wall, great big spray-paint letters, The Handmaid's Tale is already here. The whole book, in a way, is an answer to the question, if the United States were going to have a totalitarianism, what kind of totalitarianism would it have? Do you find yourself looking back at it, or at that period when you wrote it with a different lens? I mean, has your view of it changed since? Well, inevitably it changed. Of course, it changes over time. In the 90s, when the Cold War had ended, the wall had come down and people were writing books called things like The End of History. Remember that? Yeah. Well, apparently not. Guess what? <laughs> <laughs> History didn't end. And now, I'm sorry to have been so right. 
Mm. Yeah, but I did not cause it to happen. <laughs> nor, nor am I a prophet. There is, I, don't, I don't believe that you can really predict the future. Mm. There's a number of possible futures. Uh, how you act now can influence what future we end up getting. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I suppose the sense that it has happened before and it can unhappen well, and it can happen yeah, again, but sure. that, that might suggest that we should let history take its course. But I mean, do you think we should be doing more? Well, no, I, I don't think it suggests that at all. I think you can envisage the kind of world that you would like to live in and act accordingly, mm -hmm. or possibly I should even say vote accordingly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Since we still have voting quaint though that may appear. <laughs> yeah, still, yeah, still have voting rights. I want to ask you about a character. Who is, uh, the Handmaid's Tale, you may have noticed, is dedicated to two people, um, one of whom is a person called Mary Webster. Yes. Can you tell us about her? Uh, Mary Webster is either my ancestor or not my ancestor, <laughs> depending on, on whether my grandmother was feeling daring on a Monday or uh, more conservative on a Wednesday. So in her daring phase, Mary Webster was our ancestor and was involved in a witchcraft trial uh, just before Salem, lucky her. She would have got hanged otherwise. Her nickname is Half-Hanged Mary. Um, she got dragged into Boston and put on trial for witchcraft and she was absolved. She was absolved and back she traipsed to her to her town in Massachusetts. Hmm. And um, the townspeople were not pleased with the verdict, so they strung her up anyway. Oh, I didn't know But that. it was a time before they had in invented the drop. So the drop, as you know, breaks your neck. Hmm. They hadn't in invented the drop, so they just kind of, you know, hauled her up like a flag and uh, left her up there all night dangling from a tree and were convinced, of course, that she would be dead in the morning, but she wasn't. So my feeling was that if you're going to have, if you're going to stick your neck out, as I did with this book, it helps to have an ancestor with a very tough neck. <laughs> <laughs> And the other person that's dedicated to is Perry Miller. Yes. And Perry Miller was a professor at Harvard who taught American literature and civilization, a subject that I had to take uh, when I went to Harvard as a graduate student because it was my gap. I had a gap. That was it. Oh. My gap was Amer American um, history and uh, literature and civilization because I'd, ta I'd taken a course called Honors English, which went from Anglo-Saxon to T.S. Eliot, um, but it didn't have much American. A few transcendentalists, you know, a bit of Hawthorne, Emily Dickinson, Walt Whitman, but nothing of the 17th century. Perry Miller was the person who, along with another one called F.O. Matheson, uh, brought the study of, of Puritan America into the academy. Mm. And uh, I had to take that because I had to pass that exam. <laughs> and I thought I was going to be bored out of my tree, but I, I, in fact, was pretty riveted by it. It was very interesting, weird stuff. So I now have a whole shelf 
uh, of my library dedicated to the Salem witchcraft trials, uh, an exercise in mass hysteria, if there ever was one, and a, a good view of what happens when people pop out of it and realize that they've made a mistake. What do they do? They pretend it didn't happen. Those pages out of their journals are missing. These people who assiduously recorded, you know, every, uh, the inner life of their souls and their consciences and all the rest of it, those years just aren't there. Only two people ever apologized. One of the judges and one of the accusers made public apologies. And the people who had had their property confiscated really never got it back. Wow. Whoa. That's, that's fascinating. <clears throat> and, and actually an interesting link to Alias Grace. That would interesting link to Alias Grace. Memory and the suppression of it or the possible suppression yeah, well, they, of it. These were people who knew perfectly well what they didn't want to remember. Hmm. They knew, they, they just wanted to sort of, oh yeah, but now we're moving on. Hmm. Yeah, the opposite of truth and reconciliation. Maybe. No, they did not do that. <laughs> Apart yeah. from those two public apologies, none of the above. So interesting. Perhaps we should, perhaps we should have a look I had the at... following hair-raising experience. I was doing a book signing in, in Boston, and a girl came up to me, and she said, I am the great-great-great-granddaughter of Rebecca Nurse. And Rebecca Nurse was one of those who refused to admit she was a witch, made a wonderful sort of gallows speech, and they hanged her. She's one of the heroes of this story. If you, if you admitted you were one and accused other people, they would just take away all your property and put you in jail. She refused to do that. Mm. Well, which is why the crucible is about McCarthy and naming names, presumably. Yeah, uh, it's, that's, the crucible is very much based on that. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's based on a man who similarly refused to go along with this mm. and um, refused to plead guilty or not guilty. And if you refused to plead, they couldn't put you on trial as such. Mm. Uh, but they could press you. And pressing you meant they put a lot of stones on you. So they were collapsing your lungs. And he is said to have said, nothing but put on more stones. And the reason he did that was, everyone who was accused was found guilty because of the way the rules of evidence were. Um, but if you, re if you refused to plead, and therefore they couldn't really put you on trial, your land would not be confiscated. So he was saving the land for his family. Wow, and so just, just before we get to the trailer, what was your response to the woman who was the relative of Rebecca Ness? I think my hair stood up <laughs> straight on end. I really? mean, it was, a, it was a gaspy moment. The, the history is alive. Extraordinary. Can you describe your political awakenings in some way? I mean, you can, I know you don't have a straightforward relationship to second wave feminism, but how, how did that I think we're in occur? about third wave, wave feminism, or yeah. four, possibly fourth wave by Well, now. I, I meant the late 60s, which is... Oh, the late you know, 60s. Yeah. Largely, it started in the United States. Canadians were a bit different. Number one, we were a lot closer to the frontier and farming experiences 
So our idea of women was not people in negligees lying around on chaiselongs eating chocolates. We, <laughs> we were used to the idea of, of women working. Number two, we had a women's magazine in Canada called Chatelaine, and it was edited by a woman called Doris McCubbin Anderson, who had grown up in the 30s helping her mother run a boarding house because her father had absconded. She was dealing with these issues in her magazine before second wave feminism broke upon the scene. Again, Canada was somewhat of a cultural backwater <laughs> at that time. <laughs> of course, it is in the forefront of everything now. Obviously. Because of our prime minister being so cute. But, <laughs> We need a picture of him we to are, flash up on the screen yeah, at this we point. Now, where is that? Yeah. We are not used to this. We have not quite got used to it. <laughs> but in those days, we were so much of a backwater that the Freudianism that was shoved onto women uh, after the war in America to make them stay in their homes and, and have open-plan bungalows and washer dryers and four kids, that had not happened to us in the same way. Mm. So I never had anybody when I was an undergraduate, say to me, as my friends in the United States did have said to them, uh, you're getting this education so you'll be able to make intelligent conversation with your husband's business friends. That is what they were told at that time. So when they um, had their outbreak, it was an outbreak ag against uh, more than, than we had to outbreak against. What about when you were a child? I mean, were you, you were raised child, equally grew, to your brother? And I grew up in the woods and you did not wear pink frilly dresses in the woods, unless you were, you know, out of your mind in some way. Um, <laughs> but, so when I read Simone de Beauvoir's Second Sex, which of course I did in the washroom with nobody looking, um, <laughs> and it, it was very interesting, but it didn't describe my life. Do you worry that people might think that now about things that they should be more politicized about? Well, I think people have become quite politicized. Mm. I, I think it started in the early um, 21st century and has gained ground because there has been more pushback now mm. than there was in, say, 1975. Yeah. I, th I think it took the pushback a while to get organized. And I think the internet didn't exist then. So you got people writing snide articles in the paper and, and things like that, but you didn't get this deluge of stuff that happens to people now. When you read stories of, of younger women, and in fact there is, there's, an, there's a publisher in the audience right now who put out a book called Nasty Women uh, earlier this year, which has got these kinds of stories from that generation. Mm. And they are, quite specific to that generation. There's things that would not have happened necessarily to somebody in 1972. As circumstances unroll, and there's always push and push back, you know, there always is. Uh, as circumstances unroll, they, they change, and what you're pushing against changes, and the way you get pushed back against also changes. The underlying theme is quite similar. You can go so far, but no further. Or this is how you should be. And mm. it, it's not that our civilization is any different in that respect. People have 
endlessly been telling other people how they should be. It's just that the categories change. It's just younger people deciding that they're not going to be their mothers. Is there any part of any of your books that you would have done completely differently in retrospect? Yes. <laughs> Is it a long list? Do we have time? Uh, it's not a really, well, it probably would be quite long if I set my mind to it, but I'm saving that for when I'm in the rocking chair and I'm 85. I can sit there and rock and say, if only I'd done so-and-so, but it's too late now. I wouldn't have had Jimmy and Oryx and Crake using a CD-ROM system. Okay. <laughs> because now, we're, now we've got the cloud. But we, we didn't have the cloud when I was writing that book. And similarly, in The Handmaid's Tale, what we had was, was tapes. Yes. We were still using tapes. Tapes. Uh, I did say, because everything's coming back. Typewriters are coming back. Vinyl records are coming back. Polaroid cameras are coming back in a cute little form. I say, yeah. why do you want those? Well, because it's instant. You know, same reason as before. You can get them in pastel blue. <laughs> Second time round, yeah, and I said, "Well, one thing that really won't come back is is tape decks." <laughs> Apparently, wrong. They're coming back. Are they? <laughs> I don't they know are. why. But the, but in the Hammy style, they're actually recorded over. They bands, are. Right? Yeah, I they're mean, recorded that dates over. That more than the cassettes, surely. Uh, so, no, just the cassettes themselves. It's okay. not a technology you would use now. But what would you use now? It has to be an object that you make, rather than something in the cloud or something that you would store. It has to be an object that you make um, that, that you can then hide. Mm. So apart from, you know, the paper object, what is that going to be these days? Wow. What is it going to be? Just pen and paper, surely. Well, you could, you could cut a CD, but you would have to have a fairly complicated, um, you'd have to have a computer and all of that. To, mm. You'd have to have possibly more equipment than might be available to her. Question from Leah Turner. Do you ever start writing a novel and then decide it's a dead end and you should start writing something else? If so, what's the realization point? All right. Yes, that has happened to me in spades twice. And by in spades, I mean I got beyond page 100. It happened uh, the first time because I had become too organized. I thought that I should be organized and, and tidy about this process. So I got in some filing cards, and I was going to arrange my novel according to this filing card system, in which I would have, you want to hear this? Yes, this is great. <laughs> Do not start with the filing card system. This is well, the first piece of advice. Well, it might really work for some people. Okay. I'm just not that person. So the filing cards, I was going to have eight sections, and in each, no, I was going to have five sections. And in each of the five sections, I was going to have eight chapters, one for each of the eight characters that I was going to have. So I got through the scheme twice, therefore 16 mm -hmm. chapters. And I knew everything about these characters. I knew what kind of socks they wore, what they had for breakfast, uh, you know, what they said to their girlfriend and this and that and the other thing, everything you could imagine. And it was about 200 pages, and nothing had happened. So, so it was before, you know, it was before its time. <laughs> this, 
Mr. Nausgaard had not yet appeared. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Dig it out. Where is it? Well, no, I'm afraid it's, it's gone forever. Yeah, so I just thought this is, this is going to be a thousand pages long and nothing will happen until about <laughs> page 850. Perfect. And, and even so, what is it that's going to happen? Because I don't know. <laughs> These people are all getting on quite well with each other. But, um, but what are they going to do next? I, I just really didn't know. So that was that one. And the oh. other one was... Wait, did it have a title? Never mind. We're not going to go there. <laughs> so, so far in the past, is it? I think it had several. Second one, sorry. The second one, I can also tell you about the one that I did finish but didn't get published. I'll tell you about the one that didn't work out first. Okay. So I was writing the one that didn't work out in a town called Blakeney. Blakeney is in, in Norwich, in Norfolk. Mm -hmm. It's up the coast. And I was writing it in a stone fisherman's cottage in the off-season. So it was a stone fisherman's cottage in the off-season with a fireplace that I did not know how to work. No. So it was quite cold. These are terrible conditions. Well, I don't know. They were very interesting. I got my first chillblains, and I'd never actually had any or seen any, but I'd read about them. So it was a kind of thrilling literary moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they are. Dickensian. <laughs> <laughs> but back Extremes. to the novel, I was writing way at it. It had about five different time layers. You see, I'd gotten too complicated. Mm. I was writing away at it, and then I found myself, instead of spending my time at it, I found myself reading all of the historical romances that had been left behind by summer visitors. <laughs> so. Ask me anything about Mary, Queen of Scots. <laughs> and, and also somebody called Gay Lord Robert. Yes, what would we like to know about Gay Lord Robert? Something. Gay what Lord can you tell Robert us about him? probably got his wife, Amy Robsart, pushed down the stairs, <laughs> thinking erroneously that that would enable him to marry Queen Elizabeth I. Really? Yes, you didn't know this. No, I didn't know about him. Did you know about him? You, you live here, do. you don't know this. What's the matter with you? I was in the wrong cottage in Norwich. Apparently you were. So at, at that moment I realized that this was going nowhere. You know, this novel was just not holding my own attention. And it, <laughs> <laughs> it's, I was finding Gaylord Robert of more interest than the, it was sort of curtains for the novel. So that was the end of that. And right after that I went to Berlin and, and started writing The Handmaid's Tale, which I had been avoiding both by writing this novel that didn't work out and by reading about Gaylord Robert. <laughs> <laughs> what about the one that you did finish? The one that I did finish was ahead of its time. <laughs> Another one? <laughs> Another one. Uh, so it was quite McLuhan-esque. It had quite a lot of advertisements in it and things I saw in shop windows. Hmm. Uh, but it also had a complex relationship in it at the end of which the female figure was wondering whether to push the male figure off a roof. Um, but Not this was Gay Lord Roberts. Well, but in reverse. Right. This is why it was ahead action. of its time. Oh, I see. Um, <laughs> but it was 1963, and we had not yet got to second wave feminism. 
so some when people, everyone pushed their love down. Well, or at least yeah. might think of it. Right. You know, at least might think it was something you might consider doing. Whereas in 1963, it was apparently not something you might consider doing. And I had a very nice publisher take me out for a, a drink on the top of the Hotel Vancouver, uh, then the highest edifice in that town, and. Uh, <laughs> and tell me that he, he thought I, I wrote very well, but, but could I change the ending? And I said, no, I didn't think I could change the ending. I believed in art. See. And in pushing people down the stairs. No, I didn't, just a minute now. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I didn't offer roof, number one. Roof, and number sorry. Two, <laughs> number two, it doesn't actually happen, but we don't know whether it might or might not. I was going for the open ending. Okay. Yeah, right. Up to the reader, right. push got, or got not it, got push, it, yeah. got it, yeah. And, and he, I said I couldn't change the ending, and he leaned across and patted my hand, I being 23, and he said, is there anything we can do? What did that mean? I think it means uh, you're probably a bit bonkers and having a mental breakdown. <laughs> and, and they, can they help you out? And I said, no, thank you very much, that's lovely. <laughs> and that was it? And well, what else would it be? Well, where is this book now? In the Fisher Library in Toronto, the Rare Books Room. Oh, let's all go and read it. What is the title of that one? I think I'm just going to leave this to your imagination. <laughs> I've told oh, you dear. enough about that. Any, yes. uh, any detectives out there, please report back. Um, well, it's freely available to the public. It's just kind of short and boring. <laughs> <laughs> I think it shows promise, but, but, but that's about it, you know. It shows promise, that's about it. <laughs> Thank you all very much for coming, and please join me again in thanking Margaret for being here. Thank you. To hear more podcasts from the festival, listen and subscribe to Southbank Centre Podcasts on iTunes or soundcloud.com forward slash Southbank Centre.